The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, I want to encourage you to do so, to go see them at that table if you have any questions about their trip to New York. It sounds like uh, an incredible time, and I'm sure they'd be more than willing to help you with any questions that you might have. So um, if you will open your copy of God's Word to uh, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 3 through 14 today, and um, I just want to say that I'm so grateful for a, a pastor who um, is willing to let me have the opportunity to pulpit, and, and also for someone who's so willing to learn. Um, sometimes there can be a, a hesitation as a pastor to want to learn more, but I'm just so thankful to sit under Scott's teaching to see his passion for wanting to learn to become a better pastor and to better equip y'all, and I'm so thankful for you as a church, giving him the opportunity to do so. So uh, I'll be filling in for Pastor Scott today, in case you haven't picked up on that yet. But, uh, and we're going to be in Colossians 1 today. And as we close out this series of talking about what we love the most, um, one topic that we haven't talked about yet is time. We haven't talked about the topic of time yet. And so what I want to, my, my goal for you this morning is to bring out a truth that we see in Scripture and then to explain to you how this truth specifically applies to what we do with our time. Because we've, we've examined that how the gospel impacts our money, how the gospel impacts our relationships, how we serve, in all of those ways, there's a heart issue behind it. In all of those ways, in, in how we spend the money that the Lord has given us to be responsible over, and, and how we handle our relationships with others, and how we serve, all of those actions are motivated by a gospel truth, by the truth of the gospel. And so this morning, I want to show you how the truth of the gospel motivates us to use our time. And so that's why we're going to be in Colossians 1 this morning. And before um, I read through verses 3 through 14, I want to give you just a little bit of context of what's going on in this letter so that you understand the themes that Paul is quickly going to address. First, um, to understand the background of the city, you have to understand that Colossae was a small city that was a bit intimidated by its bigger and richer neighbors. So there were two cities that were located near Colossae. That was Laodicea and Hierapolis. And those cities were much bigger. They had much better economies. And as far as the Roman Empire was concerned, they focused more upon them. So I kind of think of it this way. Um, I'm originally from West Virginia. And granted, it's hard enough to describe where I'm from because a lot of people don't really know anything about West Virginia. And and that's true. So I have to put it in terms of like Pittsburgh because that's the closest big city that's near me. So if someone has no idea anything about West Virginia and they say, well, where are you from? I'm kind of like, well, it's in between two mountains. No, that doesn't work. Um, It's kind of like off a, well, no, there's only like two roads in West Virginia. So it's kind of like if you, if you find Pittsburgh and kind of like go an hour and a half south. I'm coming from around that area because if I just say Clarksburg, no one knows what it means. So in the same way, Colossae was kind of overshadowed by its bigger neighbors. Perhaps if they wanted to describe where they were from, they would say, well, it's a little bit east of Laodicea or, or something like that. So it was kind of like they felt kind of overlooked. The government was more concerned with its richer neighbors, the neighbors that were doing better economically, who had more influence. They weren't really worried about Colossae. So that's the kind of city that Paul's writing to. But also keep in mind that Paul's going to address a specific false teaching, even in these verses that we look at in the very beginning of the letter. And that false teaching is that the the church in Colossae, they were kind of wrestling with this question of who their mediator before God the Father was. Now, 
they believed, and, and not they believed, but there were false teachers coming in trying to persuade them to believe that their mediator before God the Father was an angel. Perhaps that would make the most sense because, uh, you know, an angel's near God all the time. And, and maybe, you know, it's an angel that's the mediator. But Paul quickly shoots that heresy down. See, the questions they were trying to answer is, what basis do we have to stand before Almighty God and pray? How, how can we, as sinful human beings who have sinful hearts, who have no desire for God, how can we stand before our holy God and pray, have any right to pray to him? Well, that's why I want to introduce the title of today's sermon, which is, Who is Our Mediator? Because I want to ask you the same question. What basis do we have to stand before our almighty God and pray? And how does that affect our time? Well, what do these two ideas have to do with anything? I believe to understand how God wants us to use our time, and specifically in this idea of prayer, we need to answer the question of who is our mediator. So with that, let's look at Colossians 1, 3 through 14. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, as made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I'm reminded as I read this that uh, Ethan, I don't think, was completely aware of the passage we were preaching. In God's providence, he shared that scripture with us. So God, again, is reminding us of how he saved us and brought us from, from darkness into light. And so there's so much in this passage. There's so many truths that we can dig into, so many realities. But I want to have us focus on three specific truths that Paul reveals to us in this passage. So first, our, our obedience glorifies the Father. So as we seek to answer this question of who is our mediator, what we see in this passage in the first verses is that Paul makes clear that our obedience glorifies the Father. So, so let's take a moment and let's kind of set the scene of what's going on. Paul sends his beloved servant, his, his friend Epaphras, to share the pure truth of the gospel. And Epaphras spends time in the church building them up and being faithful to God's word. He's encouraging them, he's teaching them, he's equipping them for ministry. The believers mature, and Epaphras reunites with Paul to deliver the good news. He sends Paul, Epaphras' work bears fruit, and, and Epaphras comes back to Paul, and he says, listen, I can't wait to tell you about what the church of Colossae is doing. They are encouraged by God's word. They are being faithful. Well, in the letter that Paul writes back to tell the church that he's heard about Epaphras' good news that he's shared with them about the church, he's, instead of saying, Thank you, Colossians, for being faithful and for being obedient. He says, thank you, God. Well, that kind of seems odd at first, doesn't it? So, so I think of it this way. Um, 
I think about it. I'm going to pick on BJ for a second. Let's say I have BJ come and help me set up the chairs in the gymnasium for like a special event we have in the gym, okay? So BJ takes time out of his day and he is obedient to come and he helps me set up chairs all day. And then I write a thank you note to Buddy saying, Buddy, thank you so much for your help. Well, why would I write a letter to BJ's dad when BJ was the one who came and helped me? Like, that doesn't seem to make much sense. I mean, BJ's the one who gave up his time. I wouldn't be like, well, buddy, you just did such great work helping me out instead of saying that to BJ, his son who helped me. That doesn't seem to make much sense. Why would Paul say, instead of, thank you, Colossians, for being so obedient, thank you, God? It's because their obedience made much of God the Father. See, Paul's thankfulness, we must understand, is anchored in Christ. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a specific reason why Paul defines God in in, in this manner, in this passage, that he says that God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The thankfulness is anchored in the work of Christ and what he's done. See, as he prays to the Father, Paul's point is that he does so through our Lord Jesus Christ. As the Colossians have faith, their faith is only possible because of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And so, instead of saying, thank you, Colossians, for your obedience, he's saying, thank you, God, for this work of obedience in the Colossians that is only possible through Jesus Christ. See, this faith leads to the love that the believers have toward the other saints. He says this on verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints. But this love that they have is not possible apart from their understanding of the hope laid up for them in heaven. They can't love, they can't have faith unless they understand their hope is anchored in something greater than their circumstances, greater than what's going on. In fact, about this same hope, Peter writes in 1 Peter. This is 1 Peter 1, 3-9. Listen to how Peter writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Before I read the rest of this, think about this. The fact that their hope is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, leads them to praise Jesus Christ when their hope is revealed, which I would submit to you that their hope that cannot be touched is in fact Jesus Christ himself. But listen to this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, salvation of your souls. Their faith is because of the hope they have of seeing Christ once again, that when he's revealed, it will lead to praise. And not only that, it's not only leading to praise in the future, but leading to praise in the present moment. Their hope Their faith in the fact that Christ is going to come back for them is the reason why they're able to love. The reason why they glorify God is because of this hope, who is Jesus Christ. See, God is the originator of our faith. 
He initiates the faith with us, and as a result, he's the one who enables us to love. See, if I were to go around to each person in this room, and I were to ask about your testimony of your life-changing experience with Jesus Christ, when you repented of your sin and you trusted Christ, if you've had that point in your life before, not a single one of you who have trusted in Christ for salvation could ever say, yeah, I, I loved God and it really just took a lot of nagging for him to, to love me first. Like, like I, couldn't, I couldn't get his attention and I had to nag him and nag him and finally God paid attention to me and I was saved. That's not how it works. In every single one of your stories of how you met Christ, if in fact you've had a, a time in your life when you've repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus. And every single one of those moments, God orchestrated everything that led you up to the point where you surrendered your life to him. Whether that be a friend coming up to you and telling you about Jesus, whether that be a scripture that God revealed to you, whether it be your car broke down in front of a church and you said, well, I've got nowhere else to go, so I'm gonna go to church. Whatever it might be, whatever circumstance, God loved you first. In First John, we see that we love because he first loved us. And not a single story of a believer will you ever find that they loved God before God loved them. God originated their faith. He planned their faith. He orchestrated it out, put the people in their lives, the scripture that he wanted them to see. It was God who did these things. See, this faith is possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The hope we have is not only possible because of Christ, but it is untouched, undefiled, unfading because the hope is Christ. The hope is being resurrected as Christ was resurrected. See, the fact of the matter is that because Christ lives again, we will live again if we believe in him. Paul makes his argument in 1 Corinthians 15. This, This truth is essential to the gospel. See, the gospel isn't just that, that we live with God now, but our hope is in the future that here and now is temporary, but praising God will be for all eternity with him in his presence will not end, will not end. But also, Paul makes clear that the gospel they heard is not the same as any other message. So not only is Paul lifting Christ up and saying, listen, I know you're asking this question of who's the mediator. Let me go ahead and address that, that God is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the reason why you're obedient. But Jesus is not the same as maybe these other gods that you've heard about in your Roman mythology. He's not the same who has this wondrous story or, or mystical story to him that, that you can be a, a equating Jesus with these other gods. No, he is, he is greater. In verse 6, Paul describes the message of the gospel, which is different than any story of mythology. He says that the gospel, again, this is verse six, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. That this gospel isn't a story. It's not some fad. It's not something that people are kind of into because it's in right now and it's eventually gonna fizzle out. But no, that it's gaining power. It's gaining influence because the root of the power of the gospel is in Jesus Christ. That's the only way this message has power is the work, the saving work of Jesus Christ. So the gospel, which has Christ at its center, is not another story. Not only is Christ at its center, but he's worthy of all praise and glory. He is greater than the angels. Even in this, Paul is is pushing back against the false teaching that an angel is their mediator. He's immediately addressing the issue. But let's turn our attention to the second truth in this passage. So our obedience glorifies the Father because of our mediator, Jesus Christ. But let me guard you with this warning that our obedience is not a reason to stop praying. 
our obedience is not a reason, even in our lives, in our walks as Christians, to stop where we are. And so again, I remind you of Pastor Scott, who is at a conference being equipped once again to help equip us, that he might become a better pastor, that he might love the Lord more, that he might grow in his faith. See, Pastor Scott understands that we don't just arrive and stop. There's no point on this side of going home that we will arrive. We're continually learning. See, we might think that Paul's gut reaction in light of Epaphras' good news that he brings back would be to, to focus his attention on something else. So, so Epaphras brings back the good news. that The, the, the Colossians are obedient. They're, they're obeying the Lord. They're growing in love with one, for one another. They're growing in love for the Lord. I mean, it's, just, it's good news all around. They're praising God. It, it's great. And Paul would think, all right, well, you know, that's taken care of. Let's, let's take care of what's going on over here in, in, in Corinth, for example. But no. See, Paul receives the good news, and he does something completely different. He says, as a result, we have not ceased to pray for you. See, Paul doesn't write this until after he shares about the good news we heard. He says, so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This idea is revolutionary. I mean, normally you would think, man, I'm, like, I'm doing pretty well with this. Or, or, or I hear about a church that's being faithful. I mean, like, they, they don't need my prayers. If anything, the church is struggling down the street definitely needs my prayers. But I would submit to you both need prayer. See, Paul makes two truths clear in doing this. In his response being prayer, he makes two truths clear. Here's the first truth. That knowledge of God increases our love for God. Knowledge for God increases our love for God. So while the believers exercised faith and love... Paul asked for God to fill them with the knowledge of his will, that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And adding that this walk would be in a manner fully pleasing to the Lord, see, Paul's guarding us against extremes that we tend to fall into. So Paul is not simply saying that our heads should be full of knowledge. He's not saying that, that to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord is just to have a bunch of head knowledge. But he's emphasizing still the personal nature of God as well by adding that this knowledge would actually lead us to love him more. So what this guards against is it guards against those of us who might try to fill our heads up with a bunch of knowledge, a bunch of knowledge, a bunch of knowledge, and it never sinks into our hearts. It never shows itself in actions. Or it guards some of us who might fall in the other extreme who say, man, isn't it just enough to love God and we'll be good with that and never take the time to learn the head knowledge, the accurate teaching. And there are ways that this plays out even here at Abner Creek. There are ways that we've set up safeguards. It, it explains why we do the things that we do. See, we emphasize proper theology from the songs that we sing. Think about the fact that the songs we sang today, the emphasis was on Christ and on accurately portraying Christ as we see in the scriptures and on glorifying him above everything else. That's why Ethan selects the songs that he selects because of accurate theology. We want this truth to drive us. But also in the classes that we teach, whether it be the gospel project or you have faithful Sunday school teachers who are teaching other materials, they are all put in those positions and teach proper theology. We want accurate head knowledge. We want to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. These are good things. But this doesn't mean that we simply sing the songs as frozen people as statutes, in the con- as statutes in the congregation. No, instead, what Paul's saying is that this head knowledge drives us to worship. It drives us to worship. 
So yes, we're singing accurate things about Jesus Christ. We are singing songs that have at its center him and who he is. We are singing accurate things about God. We are learning accurate things about God, but that doesn't mean that we just let it fill our heads, but we let that joy overflow into how we respond. And so I think of it this way. Um, one, one of my favorite songs that we sing here is Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. It's just absolutely one of my favorite songs. I, I can't really explain to you why. I just I love how it tells the story of the gospel in, in, in each verse. I, I love the way it's written. I, I, I love it. I, don't, I just have a liking to it. When I hear that song, there, it's an accurate song that sings truth about Jesus. It sings accurately what he's done for us and how we're to respond to us. Uh, to him, excuse me, how we're to respond to him. It, it says accurate truths. But when I sing that song, like, I just can't help it. Like, those truths just motivate me. Like, I just want to sing it really loud, and I just, I love it. It's just, it's just like going down the road, driving in your car, right? And, and maybe you've been where I am, but, like, the weather's been so nice that I have to have all the windows rolled down. And I'm singing, like, I don't know, lately I've been on, like, a Lecrae kick. And I'm, like, trying to rap Lecrae. It's not good. You don't want to see it. But, like, I just, I like Lecrae songs, so I'm, like, trying to sing those things because I just really get into it and I like it, okay? With worship, it's this head knowledge that we shouldn't think that just because our songs are accurate, that doesn't mean we can't express ourselves in it. We shouldn't think that just because we're singing right truths about God, it never motivates our hearts. In fact, Paul warns us against that. So he says that knowledge of God increases our love for God. So what I mean is this, that knowing more about him increases our love for him. So why we can't say, well, why can't we just love? Because we serve a holy God who desires to be worshiped properly. And furthermore, in 1 John, God says, if you love me, you'll, you'll keep my commands. We see that in John, and John reemphasizes that in 1 John, as we've been learning about in the student ministry. But listen to how John Piper describes this. Worship must have heart, and worship must have head. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of unspiritual fighters. Emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates flaky people who reject the discipline of rigorous thought. So there's the two extremes. But listen to this. True worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. The two extremes come together, and we see this in what Paul wrote. But, but second, the second thing this guards us against, uh, or makes clear, excuse me, is that growth in God and knowledge of God are dependent upon one another. You cannot grow in God if you are not learning more about God. If you learn more about God, you should be growing in God. One of the most beautiful things about learning about God is that we'll never know everything there is to know about him. Again, we'll never reach a point in our lives where we, we arrive and we can say, all right, I'm finished. There's everything I need to know. I've got 10 more years or, or whatever. I think I've got 10 years left. I can just cruise on out in my life. There's never a point where we arrive. There's never a point where we arrive on the side of eternity. The more we learn about God, the more we realize we can't learn everything. And so Paul prays a similar prayer in Ephesians 3. So listen to the similarities. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That the, we, we can't even fully know the love of Christ, but we should seek our best to know it. And that's Paul's desire, not only for the church at Colossae, but the church at Ephesus. 
Paul's prayer is consistent with what we see in this passage. He prays that the believers would be strengthened with all power, that they would have wisdom and understanding, and in this case, about the love of Christ. And so if we think about a more practical example, one of the ways I'm learning this for me is with Allie. And so I chose to marry Allie kind of knowing what I was getting into. That's why I dated her and chose to put a ring on her finger, all right, to be engaged to her. But what I'm realizing in our two months of marriage is that I have a lot more to learn about her, a lot more, right? So I thought I knew pretty well everything there is to know about Allie, but I'm learning way more than I ever thought possible. But the beautiful thing about that is a picture of marriage is this, that as I learn more about Allie, the more I love her. Even in her little quirks where she keeps the cabinet doors open and just walks away, that's just that's something she does. And it just, it just it drives me to, to love her more, right? It just drives me to love her more. So those are the things. Those are the things. I'm sorry I picked on you. But those are, those are the ways that we see a picture of us growing in our love for God. As we learn more about him, we love him more. Now, God doesn't necessarily have quirks like leaving cabinet doors open, but you understand how much greater this truth must be of God. Now, if I'm talking about my wife, who is a, a, a human being, how much greater must this reality be with God, who is infinite, who is holy, who is all-powerful, all-knowing? How much greater must this reality be? The more we know about God, the more we grow in our love for him. So that brings me to my final point this morning. That is this. Um, our obedience glorifying God and the fact that our obedience is not an excuse to stop praying These two truths are completely dependent upon the fact they can only be true because of our mediator, Jesus Christ. Our mediator is not an angel. Our mediator uh, is not, if you will, that simple. Our, Our mediator is Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, the only one who can stand and fully represent us and the only one who can stand before God because he is God, Jesus Christ. So as I studied this passage, um, I found myself asking why the Spirit inspired Paul to include Epaphras. I understood that he was kind of the messenger, but if you think about what Paul's writing about, you know, he's talking about Jesus and, and talking about the, the fruit that the gospel's bearing, and then he goes, yeah, you remember like Epaphras, you learned it from him, and, and he's a faithful minister to Christ. And I'm like, wait a second, what point does Epaphras have in this passage? Like, it just doesn't make much sense. It, it almost seemed like Paul kind of chased a squirrel um, in, in writing this. But what I realized, and, and as I prayed and I studied more, I saw a parallel. And so the reason why, uh, especially when, when I preach, one of the things I seek to do is give you like tangible examples. As you heard just moments ago with, with Allie and I, like you see a tangible example of that. Uh, Pastor Scott does the same thing. He, he seeks to give you examples that show a picture of a greater reality. It's because God gives us those examples all around us. So if you think about when a father loves his son or daughter well, that's a tangible example of God's love for us. Just a tangible example. We can look at that father loving his son or his daughter well, and we can see that it's a picture of a greater reality of God the Father loving his children. That's why God, I believe, gave that relationship to us. And Paul and other biblical writers often do this as well. Maybe you've heard Paul write about running the race before or spiritual armor before. He's using the physical example of running a race, the physical example of armor to paint a picture of a spiritual reality. And I believe that Paul's doing something similar in this passage as well. Um, I just want to very humbly submit to you 
that Paul is giving the church at Colossae a physical example of a spiritual reality and how Epaphras is, if you will, the mediator between Paul and the church that gathers at Colossae, that he goes back and forth between them as a mediator. It's a picture of a greater reality. So just as Epaphras demonstra- uh, demonstrated Paul to Colossae, he, he, he represented them, and Colossae to Paul, it appears Paul is using his example to demonstrate a greater reality, that Jesus is our great mediator, that Jesus is the reason God receives glory when we obey, and Jesus is the reason why we can pray to the Father in the first place, because we have our great mediator. See, listen to this. This is John in 1 John 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And in Romans, Paul states this about Jesus, that who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. But listen to this. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Because of Jesus, God has been brought near to those of us who are insignificant. And I I just want to challenge you to look and see all the ways that Paul addresses God as Father in this passage. He addresses God as Father. Because of our great mediator, God has been brought near to us. Jesus brings God near to those of us who are sinners, to all of us, those who were formerly in the domain of darkness, he not only saves us, but forgives us and gives us standing before the Father, not because of anything that we've done, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so now, I'm sure you're asking, so what does that have to do with time? So I'm glad you asked that because that's why I want to explain to you. What is the fact that Jesus Christ is our mediator? What does that have to do with time? And more specifically, Because there are so many things we could talk about with how we manage our time. I just want to talk about prayer with you. The reason why is because prayer is something that God is really working on my heart about right now. And so I don't come and stand before you as someone who is an expert on prayer. Because by no means am I an expert on prayer. But I believe that under the authority of God's word, we see the importance of prayer. And how the reality that Jesus is our mediator guards us and gives us motivation to pray. So here's what I mean. Those of us who are in this room, for the most part, fall into two categories. There are some of us in here who are believers who believe that our concerns are too insignificant to put before God. Man, we just think God's got enough going on as it is, right? He's got like 7 billion people on the planet that he's got like got worry about. He's got the universe in motion. He's got to uphold that stuff. Like he's just got too much going on. He don't have time for me. It, you know, he doesn't need to worry about um, wh- whatever I have going on at work. He doesn't need to worry about the, f- the fact that I don't know how I'm going to fix my car. He, he's just, he's not concerned with that. So I'm just not even going to bring it up for him because I don't even want to bother him in the first place. I just don't, I really don't want to bother God. Some of us fall into that category. Others of us, fall into a belief that we we don't need God to get through our day. Now, I would challenge you and say that perhaps most of us wouldn't say it that way who fall into this category. But it plays out in our lives in the fact that we just don't even consciously think to pray at all in the first place. We just don't worry about it. If something comes up, well, I'm just going to toughen up and I'm going to take care of it myself. I don't need help to do that. I can, I, I've, done it, I've done it just fine so far. I've done, done it just fine for this many years. I, I don't need help in doing this. I don't need to pray. Oh, man, it was, an, it was an easy solution anyways. I took care of it myself. I don't need to worry about that. But there's just as much danger 
in both realities that we fall into. So maybe if we fall into the first truth that we believe we're too insignificant, our concerns are too insignificant, we think about a father who's simply too busy, a father who can't hear us. So maybe you think about God like this, okay? So uh, Allie and I live in an amazing apartment, okay? It is, it is beautiful, it is gorgeous, and it's small, right? It, and it's great, it's perfect space for us. And so my thought when we first moved into that apartment after we got married, this is one of the lessons I learned rather quickly, was if I yell from the living room, it will carry through like three rooms and make it to the kitchen. And when I yell, Allie will just be able to hear me. So I'll never need to get up from the couch. I can just yell everything I need to know and Allie would be perfectly informed of what's going on. But naturally, that's not what happens. See, what happens is, is maybe I'm like sitting by my, behind my computer and working on something. I'm like, hey, Allie. Now, wait a second, you know, kind of look around maybe. Nothing. All right, I'll try it a little louder this time. Okay, hey, Allie. So I yell it again and nothing. So naturally, that leads to the next step. You know, you got to get up, take a couple steps into the doorway, but you don't go all the way in. You just yell, hey, Allie. And then finally, I have her attention. And maybe those of us who fall into the category where we believe our concerns are too insignificant for God think that maybe we just need to like, like God's too busy. And even if I called his name anyways, he wouldn't hear me. But do you understand something, believer? The moment we even think the word father, God's attention is upon us. The moment we even think the word Father, we have God's full attention because Jesus Christ is our mediator. There's no concern too insignificant. He's not bothered, and it's not that we have his attention. He's like, oh, man, again? No. In fact, we see a parable in Scripture where Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he, he tells the story of a widow who, who constantly nags and nags, and maybe you can think of it in, in your life this way. The parable would be said that maybe you had a father and you nagged him when you were a kid. You know, you're like really bugging him for whatever you want. And when the father, when your father would say, ask me one more time, that was not a challenge to ask him one more time. That was actually an invitation not to ask him anymore. Like you don't want to push the lines with that. But when God says, ask me one more time, he's not saying it that way. He's inviting us to. He's inviting us to. No concern is too insignificant. When we call God's name, we have his full attention. With Christ as our mediator, no problem is too small for the Father to be concerned. And when we go through the day and we fail to acknowledge God on the other extreme, we're saying that we don't need God's help to make it through our day. But the fact that Christ is our mediator shows us our need for a mediator. It shows us that even if we think we've got the problem handled on our own, we really don't. In the death Christ suffered, we see the severe punishment we deserve for our sin. See, the truth that Christ is our mediator means that if you're not a believer here in this room, maybe you kind of also fall into similar extremes. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ's room, you might be challenged in thinking that maybe you've just gone too far for Christ to save you. Maybe your sins are too much, or maybe you've just done something that if anyone knew about, they, they would just be so ashamed especially God knows about it and there's no way that he can save me. But the death of Christ shows that, there, that, that God was willing to step in and to save you and to prove that there is no sin that cannot be forgiven, that you can be forgiven for any of your sins. And for those of you who may be coming in this room and you aren't a believer and you think that your good works are enough, the death of Christ shows the severe punishment for sin. And the death that Christ died was not a pretty death. It was gruesome. And it shows how gruesome our sin is. See, the solution to each, 
to believing you're too far gone to be forgiven, to believing that you don't need Christ, the solution of both is to look at the cross. Because on the cross, we see a father who reached out to make a way for a right relationship with him. That no sin is too far gone that cannot be forgiven. That if you think you've got it on your own, you don't. Because Christ on the cross shows the severe penalty for sin. I believe we can most evaluate which extreme we, we fall under, which attitude we fall under, both as, uh, as believers. Whether we believe that our Father doesn't really care about our little concerns or that we don't need Him by our prayer lives. Listen to how Scripture addresses these concerns. This is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if, he, if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we ask of Him. That's First John 5. So we can evaluate where our faith is most accurately by how we spend our time, specifically in prayer. I really want to challenge you to ask yourself, how often are you praying? And I'm not saying that to to try to beat you up because listen to me, I'm not an expert on this either. And even as I ask myself this question as I prepare this morning, even as I ask myself this question as as God laid this sermon on my heart, man, I've got so much growing to to do. But where we set our time, do we set time up for prayer? How we handle our time shows where our hearts are. Now understand, this is apart from realities and responsibilities, good responsibilities God has given us, whether it be in school, in work, and in other opportunities that God has given us. Those will naturally take up time in our day. But what I'm asking is even at this point, are you spending time in prayer at all? Perhaps there's a heart reality behind that. Are you praying? Are you in God's word? And if you're not, then let me give you the greatest encouragement that Jesus Christ is our mediator. Jesus Christ is our mediator who pleads before the Father on our behalf, and we have every motivation to start now to be in God's word and to be praying because Christ is our mediator. So as we close, I want to share this quote with you from Charles Spurgeon. Um, Charles Spurgeon was a, a very wise pastor. He was very gifted. And he said this, do you feel that you have no needs? Then I fear you do not know your true poverty. Do you have no desire or mercy to ask of God? Then may the Lord in his mercy show you your misery. For a prayerless soul is a Christless soul. It's very scary words. But listen to how he describes prayer. I love this. The very next thing he describes is prayer. And he says this, prayer is a struggling speech of the believing infant. The war cry of the fighting believer and the requiem of the dying saint falling asleep in the arms of Jesus. It is the brother, the password, the comfort, the strength, and the privilege of a Christian. And that our knowledge of the truth of God, that Jesus Christ is our mediator, would drive us to prayer to him today. That knowing that Christ has stepped in on our behalf would drive us to spend time in his word. Believer, be encouraged. Be encouraged that Christ is our mediator who stands before God for us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your love. 
and for your forgiveness. God, I thank you that that you have made a way for us to be made right with you through Jesus Christ. God, that, that no sin is too far, that you can't forgive. God, that you would be so loving enough to show us in our pride when we don't think that we need you. God, that you would show us that we desperately do need you in the death of Christ upon the cross. God, I pray that we wouldn't walk away from today believing that you have many other concerns to worry about that's, that's more important, that you, you can't answer or hear our prayers. God, I pray that we wouldn't walk away with any doubt in our minds. You delight our, in our prayers because you, you do. You, de, you delight in us because of Jesus Christ. God, would this motivation of what you've done for us in Christ motivate us to spend our time wisely in prayer and seeking you in your word, God? It's in your name I pray. Well, while Ethan um, closes us in a song, I, I just want to encourage you. Um, I'll be available up front. And maybe something about what I've said today, uh, you realize is true in your life. And maybe you don't know what to do next. So we talk about prayer. We talk about reading God's word. But, but maybe you just don't know what to do for that to apply in your life. Well, I, I want to help you. So please feel free during the song to come talk to me. We have uh, people in a prayer room located just outside these doors. They would be happy to pray with you. Whatever it is that the Lord's leading you to do, I would encourage you to do that. Maybe you just need to spend this time in prayer. You know, maybe just applying what you see and that conviction you feel starts here and now. That's what this time is for. So whatever it is that the Lord's leading you to do, I would just encourage you with this. Obey. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.